In January of 1824, Charles McCarthy, the governor of the British colonies of Sierra Leone and the Gold Coast, marched an army of 10,000 men into the territory of the Ashanti Empire. After a year of small disputes between the Ashanti and a local British ally, war between the Ashanti and the British had finally come. McCarthy and his commanders, believing that any coming battle between the two armies would amount to an easy victory for the British, decided to split their army into four columns to cover more ground, and that they would converge at a predetermined rendezvous point. With this plan in mind, the army split in four and began a rapid advance into Ashanti territory. But this rendezvous would never happen. As each British column advanced into Ashanti lands, the waiting Ashanti army picked them off one at a time driving the British back while inflicting devastating losses. None of these columns would suffer worse than that led by McCarthy himself. As the smallest column, with about 500 soldiers in it, only around 20 escaped back to the British Gold Coast. The remaining 480 were either captured, killed, or went missing, and McCarthy himself was among the dead. After being struck with two stray musket balls, McCarthy's corpse was decapitated, his skull lined with gold, and given as a drinking cup to the Ashantihene, the king of Ashanti, as a sign of what happens when you challenge Ashanti hegemony. This battle, the Battle of Nsamanko, is generally remembered as one of the most brutal military defeats in British history. And, in today's historical memory, the Ashanti Empire is remembered almost exclusively for the defeats that it both inflicted and suffered at the hands of the British Empire. But, while the story of these conflicts is certainly interesting and will feature prominently in this podcast season, the Ashanti Empire was so much more than just an enemy of the Brits. Beyond these wars, what was the Ashanti political system like? What was its religion? How did its economy work? And most crucially for our early episodes, where did this empire, which proved itself capable of standing toe-to-toe with any foe, come from in the first place? Hello everyone, and welcome to the third season of the History of Africa podcast. Without further ado, let's dive into the origins of the fascinating Ashanti Empire. Season 3, Episode 1, The Migration Period. The story of this season takes place in the region of Ghana. And yes, as everyone always has to do when they talk about Ghana, it's time to do away with some confusion. If you've ever heard of the Empire of Ghana from a book or class on African history, you can somewhat throw that out the window. The ancient empire of Ghana has some to do with this season's podcast, but surprisingly little, and was, in fact, located in an entirely different part of West Africa. However, it may crop every once in a while, so to avoid confusion, I'm going to call the empire of Ghana by its more proper name, the empire of Ouagadou. Now, when I talk about Ghana, I am referring to the rough area of the modern-day Republic of Ghana, you know, that country that is labeled as Ghana on modern maps. Now, Ghana is located on the southern coast of West Africa, and if you remember our section on West Africa in the introductory episode of this series, you might remember vaguely how the region is divided into climate zones that stretch from east to west across the body of the African continent. In the north, there is of course the Sahara, the vast tracts of sandy desert that are almost entirely uninhabited, save for the occasional nomadic encampment or oasis town. Travel south of the Sahara and you'll find yourself in the Sahel, a semi-arid shrubland that clings to the edge of the Sahara. This area is a transitional zone, still quite dry, but more than capable of supporting both wild and agrarian plant growth during a drought-free year. Now, if you go a bit further south of the Sahel, you'll find yourself in the West Sudanian savanna. These grasslands, while still somewhat dry, receive considerably more rainfall than the Sahel. The savanna, with its tall, dry grasses, has become the dominant mental image of the mainstream public's conception of Africa, and for good reason. 
Besides being the primary setting for nature documentaries, the savanna and the Sahel regions have typically been the center of the most internationally visible human histories of West Africa. The most famous empires of West Africa, namely Wagadu, Mali, and Songhai, were all societies that dominated the Sahel and savanna at different times. However, if you travel a little further south of the savanna, you'll find yourself in the primary setting of this season, the West Africa forest region. Now, when I say forest region, you could be forgiven for picturing a thick jungle or dense tropical rainforest. And, in certain parts of the region, namely the southern coasts, things really do start to resemble the stereotypical rainforest environment. But for the most part, most of the forest region should not be described as a thick jungle, but as, well, just that, a forest. In the north, these forests at first form a sort of mosaic pattern, with patches of savanna grassland existing in between sections of woodland. This stretch of forest, from the patchy woodlands in the north to the dense tropical rainforest in the south, and of course the dense but more moderately wooded forests in the middle, will serve as the central climate zone of the Ashanti Empire. Now, modern humans have inhabited the forests of West Africa for a fairly long time, but not as long as you might expect. The first evidence of modern humans migrating into West Africa occurred only about 130,000 years ago, which roughly aligns with when the first humans were migrating out of Africa. And, like every other group of humans on Earth at the time, these people migrating into West Africa were hunter-gatherers. While there is some evidence of early semi-sedentary hunting and gathering, the first evidence of primarily agricultural lifestyles from the forests of Ghana occurred around 5,000 years ago. A group of people, called the Kintampo culture by archaeologists, migrated into the forests of Ghana from parts unknown, and formed the first true settled agrarian culture. The fact that the Kintampo cultivated fire-resistant millet, a trait that's not very advantageous in the relatively humid forest region, is evidence that they likely migrated from the dry savannas to the north, where fire-resistant grasses were plenty. Despite the introduction of agriculture, however, the forests of Ghana remained lightly populated for the next 4,000 years. The Kintampo culture lived primarily in small, self-governing villages. The first true states would not be introduced until another wave of settlers came from the north, almost 4,000 years later. This group, known as the Guang peoples, were refugees, fleeing from a series of conflicts in the Savannah region. The Guang followed the Volta River, a river system that flows south from modern-day Burkina Faso into Ghana, and they created a series of city-states along the banks of the river around the 10th century AD. While we don't know much about the states established by the Guang, we can say with decent confidence that they were significantly larger than the villages of the descendants of the Kintampo, and constituted the region's first true cities. Unfortunately, we know very little about these city-states, and it's unlikely that we'll ever learn more. With the erection of a dam in 1965, much of the Volta River Valley flooded, forming a long, twisting reservoir, and most of the likely archaeological sites for early Guang settlements have been underwater ever since. However, three more ethnic groups migrated into Ghana shortly after the Guang, and with their arrival, we can mostly establish the ethnic and geographic map on which the season story will take place, though it will change throughout. The first of these groups is the Dagomba. Where exactly the Dagomba migrated from is, frankly, a mystery. Though most of the local oral histories and anthropological studies seem to indicate that they came from somewhere around Lake Chad, hundreds of miles to the northeast of Ghana. Like the Guang, the Dagomba were refugees, fleeing from the political turmoil that ravaged the medieval Sahel and Savannah. When exactly they arrived is also somewhat unclear, with estimates ranging typically from the 10th to 12th centuries. 
They settled primarily in the northern edges of the forest region, and subjugated the previous peoples who had been living there, integrating them into their culture and society. According to the traditional histories of the Dagomba people, the various families, cities, and clans of the Dagomba remained disunited and fractured, ruled primarily by an elite priestly class called the Tengdana. However, throughout the 13th and 14th centuries, a group of several warrior kings united the disparate states of the Dagomba into a unified empire known as Dagbon. If you'd like to learn more about the foundation myth of this North Ghanaian empire, which is, you know, going to come up a few more times in this podcast, you can go to the show's Patreon, patreon.com slash historyofafrica, and pledge $1.99 or more to receive access to our premium content, which will feature a section on the speculative origins of the Dogbon Empire. The other migratory group, one which will play a much larger role in this season's story, are the Akan. If you don't know a lot about the history of Ghana, even defining who the Akan are can be kind of a challenge in and of itself. Anthropologists, scholars, and of course, many within the Akan community themselves have debated extensively about what the Akan identity generally means. Historically, people have labeled the Akan as an ethnic group, though more recently, scholarship has leaned towards labeling the Akan as an ethnic supergroup or meta-ethnicity, meaning an ethnic group which contains multiple smaller ethnic groups within it. If that kind of confuses you, then you can think of it as like an ethnic Matryoshka doll. You know, those Russian dolls with other dolls inside of them. You have the Akan, which is the biggest one, which contains many other smaller groups within it. While all Akan ethnicities have a shared cultural and linguistic heritage, they all have some differences too, which makes it difficult to just lump them in together as one identity. Most Akan and outsider scholars believe that they share heritage from several waves of migration that took place into Ghana from the north. Like the Dagomba, nobody is sure on where precisely the Akan migrated from. However, genetic and linguistic evidence, combined with many Akan oral histories, seem to indicate that the first Akan settlers came from the western Sahel. The causes of this migration are equally unclear, though the oral histories of the Akan seem to generally argue that they fled from political instability that arose from the gradual collapse of the Wagadu Empire or that they moved south to escape persecution from the growing authority of West African Islamic scholars, who sought to stomp out the Akan's practice of traditional religious beliefs. The first Akan city was settled in the northern regions of Ghana, on one of the Volta's tributary rivers, where the savannas meet the outskirts of the forest. These early Akan settlers established a city known as Bonomanso, which would become the capital of the first large Akan state, usually called the Bono State, or sometimes Bonoman. While the precise history of the Bono state has been lost, we can learn a little bit about what was going on there from wider historical context of West Africa at the time. If you've ever taken a class on West African history, you've probably heard of the Trans-Sahelian trade route. It's a pretty big deal, and I even touched on it briefly in the introductory episodes of the podcast. To refresh your memory, trade in West Africa generally followed along a north-south axis, with merchants traveling back and forth across the Sahel from the Sahara in the north to the forests in the south. While multiple goods were exchanged across this trade route, the two that most famously defined the trade network were salt, mined from the pits on the fringes of the Sahara, and gold, panned from the rivers of the southern savanna and forest regions. Now, this trade might sound a little bit unfair to us today. I mean, gold is still considered a precious commodity, while salt is something you can buy in huge quantities from the store for just a few bucks. But things were different back in medieval West Africa. While salt today is mined at industrial magnitudes and transported for cheap, 
In medieval West Africa, the only accessible mines for the material could be found on the fringes of the Sahara. This hazardous location, where it was hard to set up permanent settlements, meant that mining and transporting salt was difficult, expensive, and time-consuming, resulting in the material becoming incredibly scarce in West Africa. Not to mention, while most people complain today about having too much salt in our diets, remember that salt is necessary for human survival. While hunter-gatherers can typically rely on getting their salt needs met from the animals they hunt, the increasingly agrarian society of the forests of Ghana had to go out of their way to artificially implant salt into their diets. And, of course, salt is also useful for purposes outside of food. It was crucial as a preservative in a region where storing leftovers in a cold place was difficult to say the least, and also played a role in traditional medicine, being used to treat various ailments. So when you combine the low supply with such a high demand, to the people of West Africa, salt was literally worth its weight in gold. However, the Trans-Sahelian trade was not necessarily a universal producer of prosperity. If you've heard of this trade before, I bet you learned about it in the context of the Sahelian empires, like Wagadu or Mali, who did benefit substantially from this trade route. The Sahelian governments made bank from taxing merchants as they crossed through their realms, while local entrepreneurs made their own profits from providing these merchants with lodging and food, all at an incredibly expensive markup, of course. However, while the Sahelian kingdoms benefited immensely from acting as middlemen, the societies on each end of this trade route, you know, the places where the gold and salt came from, did not experience the same prosperity. Typically, the practice of exporting raw materials, like, say, gold or salt, is usually not the quickest way for society to grow its wealth. While I could go on a whole spiel about economic formulas and exchange rates, just know that generally the amount of labor used to collect and transport raw materials typically generates comparatively less wealth than the amount put into, say, creating a finished product. So, while the trade in gold and salt was, by its nature, unlikely to produce great wealth for the exporting kingdoms, the way that the Trans-Sahelian trade worked in general further drove the forest region into economic stagnation. Remember how I said that merchants paid taxes to the Sahelian empires? Well, those taxes basically represented lost profits, and the lost profits from having to pay those taxes were largely passed on to the consumer. So, because of this, every time a merchant carried gold north or salt south, the customer on the other end always paid a little more than what the cargo would normally be worth to compensate for Sahelian taxes. And, while that might not seem like much, these tiny overpayments really added up over time. So, while the kingdoms of the Sahel grew incredibly wealthy from this trade-based economy, the cities and towns of the forest regions remained destitute. And, if this wasn't bad enough, the kingdoms of the Sahel would sometimes take it a step further. By producing gold or salt, each kingdom was basically making itself a target for foreign intervention. Sometimes, the Sahelian empires would try to control the price of gold or salt in order to maximize their own profits. And, to do this, they would militarily invade the gold or salt-producing kingdoms to increase their own influence there. However, the establishment of the Bono state changed all of this. You see, the Bono were safe from military intervention from the Sahel. By setting up their capital right on the border of the forest in the savannah, the Bono state ensured that the primarily cavalry-based armies of the Sahel would struggle to penetrate into their forested territory in any meaningful way, and that any foreign intervention would be more costly than it was worth. While their climactic location proved important, it would be the presence of a certain mineral that would allow Bonoman to become the wealthiest state in Ghana, iron. 
You see, prior to the Akan settlement in northern Ghana, there is little evidence of any domestic iron-making industry in the forest region. There were iron tools used by the previous inhabitants, but they were largely imported. However, the Akan, coming from the north, brought with them the knowledge of iron processing. And, as the only major processor of iron in Ghana, Bonomanso profited immensely from the monopoly on this incredibly useful material. In order to acquire iron tools and finished goods, people from throughout the forest region of Ghana basically had no other choice than to buy them from Bonomanso. And, of course, they paid in gold. With this gold, the Akan merchants could afford to buy salt from the north, which they could then sell to the people of the forest region at a markup. The city of Bonomanso quickly grew from a small settlement into the prosperous crafts hub and mercantile gateway of Ghana. Almost all of the goods that left or entered the forest of Ghana would pass through Bonomanso, and, much like the Sahelian empires to their north, now Bonomanso could profit not only from its production of iron, but from the lucrative business of acting as a trade middleman. By the start of the 14th century, Bonoman, fueled by this growing wealth, had become the most powerful state in the forest region. However, while Bonomanso was profiting immensely from acting as a middleman in the trade of gold, iron, and salt, the leaders of the state sought to expand even further. In an effort to more directly control the gold fields to the south, many Akan began migrating southward, further into the forested heartland of Ghana. However, as the Akan migrated south, the cultural cohesion of these Akan groups gradually weakened. Due to the difficulty of transportation and movement through the Ghanaian rainforests, Akan settlements ended up becoming fairly isolated from the mother kingdom of Bonoman, even if they weren't that far away. And as time went on, these Akan settlers gradually developed their own distinct cultures and dialects, and eventually, their own independent states. I'll be posting a map on the podcast blog if you'd like to follow along visually, but to generally summarize, the Akans that settled in the far south formed a state called Fante, and were divided between multiple small city-states and petty kingdoms. In the southwest, a group of Akan formed a state renowned for its great architecture and construction. For this, the other Akan called them Adansi, meaning builders, and their state was called Twifo. Further east from the Adansi, another group of Akan migrants formed the Akwamu, a martial state which will play a critical role in the later foundation of the Ashanti Empire, which we'll elaborate on in future episodes. In the central region, the ancestors of the Ashanti peoples, governed by various local clans, began to form a distinct culture and dialect of their own. As the Akan migrated into southern Ghana, they were joined in the 15th century by our final group of migrants, known as the Gadangbe. They were led by a semi-mythical king and spiritual leader known as Ayikushi. Like the Akan and Dagomba, the Gadangbe were refugees, fleeing from the political chaos around Lake Chad. Once in Ghana, they settled on the coast, establishing six independent city-states, with the coastal trade hub of Accra eventually becoming the largest. However, the most powerful and prestigious Akan state emerged in the central forests of Ghana. From their initially small capital of Jukwa, these Akan settlers would rise to become the hegemonic power of the forest region. No, they're not the Ashanti, but they would rule over them for more than a century, and would serve as the first major obstacle in the Ashanti Empire's rise. Join us for our next episode in two weeks, when we learn more about the Denkira, the first true empire in Ghanaian history, and how their decline would lead to the rise of the Ashanti. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, 
historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode, like all others, is brought to you by our patrons. Raul Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Aaron L., and Kevin Johnson, among others. Thank you for helping to make the show happen.